Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So here we are again, another week, another opportunity to worship together, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. As Cammie said, and most of you know, we're in the middle of this opening chapter that Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And in it, he's teaching us primarily about what as Christians we are to believe. And our beliefs, they're so important because they inform our identities. And our identities are critical to us because they actually shape our thoughts, our actions, and essentially the totality of our lives. So we've been using our tombstones up here to help us consider different aspects of our identity. And in particular, we're reminded that each of us have a birth date. We celebrate it each year. And that causes us to consider this question, where is it that I came from? It's such an important thing for us to consider. And then of course, we all will one day have a death date. And that reminds us of this question, where will I go when I die? And then in between the birth date and the death date is a little tiny dash that represents our life. And that causes us to consider the question, why am I here in the first place? And as Paul lays out this Christian belief and these foundational components of it, it helps us answer these three existential questions. And they're so important because he keeps referencing this phrase, in Christ or in Him. You recall, Paul is writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's the first time we see him reference that in him or in Christ Jesus. He's writing also from a jail cell, and yet he's joyful and he's thankful because God has blessed us in Christ. That's the second line you see up there. And the very specific blessing that Paul refers to is that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, as his adopted children with all the blessings that accompany it both now and in heaven. And then Paul makes three statements about what it means to be adopted in Christ, and they all start with the words, in him. Last week we covered the first one, number four up there, and we learned that in him we have redemption through Christ's blood. We're all enslaved to sin. It's Cammie laid out for us. But Jesus ransoms us, purchases us, forgives us by shedding his own blood on our behalf. And then this week, we focus on number five up there, how being in him means that we've obtained an inheritance. This is exciting news, actually. As Paul has demonstrated thus far with his teaching on this phrase, in him or in Christ, it's not who the world tells us that we are. It's not even who we think we are. 
It's who God says we are that matters. And God says through the Apostles Paul's letter here that our identity is in Him or in Christ. Paul's teaching on being in Christ also happens to speak to God's grand purpose for His creation. So this is cosmic in magnitude when we really think about it. You see, individually, we tend to focus on things that are specific to us, like work deadlines that we have, or maybe school projects as we finish up the school year, or social media presence, or around Western Pennsylvania, seems to be all about cutting grass these days. And all the while we're focused on our own little lives, the world is focused on politics, wars, the environment, natural disasters, all the headlines that we read in the paper. But what Paul's on about here is what's going on behind the scenes of all the world events and all of our everyday ordinary lives. And being in Christ is part of God's grand design to achieve His eternal purposes. It's His plan for the fullness of time. And this is important because as humans, we tend to see things dimly. We're clouded by the things of this world. We're so distracted with our own fascinations, caught up in our own little lives, and limited by our finite minds. We like to celebrate technological innovations, whatever the latest gadget is out there. But the more we learn, the more we're aware of how little we actually know. In fact, as we saw last week, the only reason we get a glimpse into God's grand design is because God reveals it to us. These mysteries are out of human reach until God chooses to reveal them by granting us wisdom and insight, both the intellect and emotion and the affection. So each time we hear these words in Him, and if you're studying your Bible throughout the week, you will see it everywhere throughout the New Testament in particular, in Him. It should remind us of at least two things. First, our identity is in Christ. And second, being in Him is part of God's masterful plan that unfolds with each passing day. Now, as I mentioned, last week we covered the first in Him, redemption, and that's what you see up there in the white text that Cammie read for us. And we're going to focus today on the orange text up there. But we left off in the blue text, so I want to pick up back there again. And that's with God's plan to unite all things in Christ, to essentially restore harmony as it was back in the garden. Paul specifically states that God's plan is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, to be crystal clear on this front, this is not a universalist position. We hear it regularly that all roads lead to heaven. That is not what Paul is saying here. We must be very careful that we don't read it this way. It would be inconsistent with the rest of his letter to the church in Ephesus, but also, um, more specifically, the Bible at large. Now, this is God's plan to unite all things in Him, meaning all things that are in Christ will be united. And hopefully you can see that in the text. It's just like some Jews and some Gentiles from Ephesus were united in Christ, but not all Jews and Gentiles were united in Christ. All of God's adopted children, regardless of your denomination affiliation, will be united in Christ in the fullness of time. So what's going on in the meantime, in our day-to-day, everyday, ordinary lives? 
Well, as we've said, when we are in Christ, we belong to Him. We're a part of Him, His body, His church. And we actually begin to experience God's blessings as we operate within His church as His adopted children. You see, the church is commissioned to carry out what God has been doing behind the scenes of everyday ordinary life. And that's why we can't just be a church that only meets on Sundays. We gotta be about the business of the kingdom every single day of the week to fulfill our commission as a church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, we're instruments of God's plan to unite all things in Christ. That's God's cosmic purpose, unity in Christ. And that can't happen by the world or any other religion deciding to unify things. And you know why? Because it's not God's plan. God's plan is to unify all things in Christ. And as divisive as the world is today, it was equally as divisive back then. It wasn't the Fox News versus the CNN watchers that we have of today. It was the Gentiles versus the Jews, the worldly versus the religious. Remember, Paul writes this letter to the saints in Ephesus, meaning to believers who were formerly Gentiles and Jews. And it's a call to depart from previous identities and to unify as Christians under one name, and that's the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And the call hasn't changed. It applies to all of us too, to leave our past identities, those that you see up there on the graphic, but even others that we hold on to probably too tightly. Identities like honor student, athlete, musician, the popular kid, successful businesswoman, lawyer, construction worker. These are all identities we have. And then other words, maybe not so good words, that we also hold as our identities. Words like loser, failure, last guy picked to play kickball, even village idiot. These are phrases we just throw out all the time, and many of us adopt them as our identity. We're to leave them all, the good and the bad, because God has adopted us and given us a new identity in Christ. And if you recall the letter Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he writes, in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. All are one in Christ. So what brings Jews and Gentiles together, the slave and the free, the man and the woman, what unifies the religious and the worldly, the liberals, the conservatives, it's Jesus. Now, when you look at this slide up here, on one side we see the Gentiles, and they're known typically for being worldly, rebellious, sinful, lawless, selfish. And then the Jews, they're on the other side of that cross. They're overly religious, self-reliant, sinful too, judgmental, self-righteous. But when they're both washed in Christ's blood, it brings them together. And when we are in Him, in Christ, God's adopted children, those worldly identities, they begin to dissipate. Instead, 
we begin to place our focus on the identity that he gives us meaning we shift our life focus from seeking our own end to seeking God's ends his cosmic purpose God's grand plan that's going on behind the scenes of life to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth and that's exactly why we've been commissioned to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit so what becomes of us when we are in Christ members of his body his church well we are redeemed as we learned last week and we also get an inheritance Paul writes in him we have obtained an inheritance first as God's adopted children in Christ we are in a relationship with him and each other of course notice that word up there we we have obtained an inheritance who's the we the Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus those who are in Christ members of his body his church and so we share in this inheritance with all the Saints so if you look around this is the people you will be sharing this inheritance with let's think about now an inheritance for just a minute because they have several unique and important characteristics first they're passed down by virtue of a relationship for example you might inherit a personality trait or an estate from a relative second the traits and possessions that comprise an inheritance are the result of someone else's efforts your parents or your aunt it's by virtue of their work their relationships that they amass these traits and possessions that are then passed down to you and third the inheritance is shared by all those who have a stake in it all those who are named as heirs to the inheritance and then fourth receiving an inheritance can change your life dramatically you can pay off bills you can take on new hobbies if it's big enough you can tell your boss what to do with your job right but the thing is Paul isn't talking about worldly inheritance he's referring to a kingdom one that one he mentioned earlier in Ephesians where God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the here and now that means things like forgiveness receiving the Holy Spirit sharing in fellowship with each other a foretaste of heaven and of course when we get to heaven will actually see God can you imagine we're gonna be without sin we are gonna reign with Christ enjoy his glory and this is for all eternity meaning it never runs out it never gets old riches of his grace lavished upon us Paul writes no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind conceived what God has in store for those who love him those who are in him and so the use of the word inheritance to describe how this goes down illustrates some key insights for us first the inheritance is actually passed down by virtue of a relationship being adopted in Christ by God before the foundation of the world second it's a result of others efforts namely Christ's redeeming us on the cross to make us holy and blameless before God third we share it with our brothers and sisters who are in Christ too 
part of his body, his church, the fellow heirs. And fourth, it dramatically changes everything. We've obtained a kingdom inheritance. It's huge. Both now, the foretaste, and for eternity. And in response, as a servant of Christ Jesus, we take up our crosses daily and we follow after Him with all we've got. Do you see how when we know how it all ends with an eternal inheritance, it changes absolutely everything. So we go to work on a Monday morning and our boss is wearing us out. It's okay because we get that kingdom focus. Picked last for cornhole at the church picnic. How embarrassing. So what? I got that kingdom focus. Facing worldly suffering, I can get through it because I got that kingdom focus. You see, when God makes known to us the mystery of our adoption, calls us to repent, place our faith in Christ, when we begin to experience our redemption and the foretaste of the kingdom inheritance in Him, we quickly begin to lose interest in the things of this world. It's not to say that they don't impact us, but rather our perspective changes. These things no longer shape our identity because our identity is in Christ. If you think about it, wars are fought to grow empires, to expand influence, mostly to puff up egos and to fuel self-esteem. People fight over money, status, popularity, just about anything they can find, really. But they're focused on the things of this world, and that's the sinful flesh in all of us, isn't it? One of the easiest ways to see if our focus is on worldly things or whether it's on kingdom things is to look at our giving. It speaks volumes. It's not how much we give. This isn't a, these aren't remarks to encourage people to give. That's not it at all. It's rather our spirit toward giving. Giving is a very personal thing. So it speaks to the spirit within us. In fact, it's so personal. That's why none of us know anybody's giving in here except one person, Marcy, and that's because she's got to process it. And she's a cipher, you know that. Everything stays in the vault with her. Um, we do have one elder that kind of oversees it, but that's it. That's how personal it is. And that's why we must all ask this question. Do we give out of the overflow of what God is doing in our lives, or is giving a struggle for us? Do we find joy in worshiping God this way, or is it hard to part with our hard-earned dollars? Do you see how our attitude toward tithing, giving 10%, as we're called to do, shows us exactly where our focus is. And that's why the elders decided we won't pass a plate here. We don't anyone it to feel that they have to give on a sense of guilt. It shouldn't feel like a shakedown every time you go into church. Giving should come from a heart of gratitude for God's grace in our lives. It's the same reason why we decided not to do a big campaign to fund the new parking lots. We only want people to give when it's out of the overflow of their hearts. And as many of you found out that we're working on this thing, many of you started to ask questions and have started to write checks because you're giving out of the overflow of your hearts. But again, these words aren't to encourage more giving. That's not it at all. They're to encourage us to consider our approach to giving. As a church, 
will continue to make needs, those that are above and beyond our operating budget, available and known to all of you in the congregation. Because we want to be a church that prayerfully and joyfully ties and even goes beyond with offerings whenever the Holy Spirit prompts us. We want to be a church with a kingdom focus on our giving, not a worldly focus. Another way to see whether our focus is on the world or God's kingdom is to consider our approach to suffering. Every one of us faces suffering at some level or another and at varying intensities over the course of our lives. Are we quick to feel sorry for ourselves? Do we sulk because it seems so unfair that it's happening to us? And then we do, do we immediately petition God to remove it all? Or do we approach our suffering like Paul did? with a sense of joy, gratitude for God's many blessings in life, praying instead that God would use our suffering to produce perseverance, character, and hope. Now for sure, the change in our perspective from a worldly focus to a kingdom focus, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It's part of that sanctification process we're always talking about. So we must ask, seek, and knock that the Holy Spirit might change our perspective. Because when God reveals to us through wisdom and insight that we are his adopted children and heirs to his kingdom, we'll start to lose interest in our earthly inheritance, which for most of us, it's not going to be around, and we're not going to be around much longer to enjoy it anyway. And then the Holy Spirit turns our focus instead to our enormous, unfathomable kingdom inheritance, which lasts forever. Now, being chosen by God to receive this inheritance is especially remarkable when we consider that we've come from such an impoverished condition as sinners. We're all prodigals at some level or another. You don't have to be a former drug addict. You don't have to have spent time in jail to have a remarkable story. Every single one of us are a rags-to-riches story. One final point to note out is the word that's used here is obtained. And it refers specifically to casting lots for something, meaning we didn't do anything to deserve it. We just obtained it by virtue of something outside of ourselves. It's kind of like when you win the lottery. You can't be all high and mighty because you won the lottery. You didn't do anything to merit it. You won simply because your number came up. So there can't be any pride in obtaining this inheritance. Rather, it should bring us to our knees in humility and praise. And then Paul reaffirms a third time in this opening chapter about how this all goes down. He writes, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is very typical of Paul's writing style. He reinforces his teaching by repeating key points to highlight them from different angles. And the particular angle Paul takes in this text helps us see that we receive this inheritance simply because of God. And this is a critical thing for us to take away today. In fact, everything is of God. The source, the design, the mechanism, and the purpose of God's plan is God. How do we see that? Well, Paul affirms that the source is God choosing or predestining his adopted children, meaning the destiny of God's people 
redemption in Christ, was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Paul also explains the design. It's according to the counsel of God's will. He willed it all on his own. He did not seek our counsel or anyone else's counsel for that matter. He is the potter and he decides what to do with his clay. As we've said many times, God is sovereign. He designed the universe all on his own and he does things his way. And he designed it such that he is also the mechanism by which his will is accomplished. The text says God works all things. And we see this over and over again throughout Scripture. As God's providential hand moves in fulfillment of his promises, working to accomplish his will, we see nations rise, rulers fall, floods destroy, remnants remain, and God's hand working out his purpose in it all. Towards what end or purpose? Well, Paul reiterates, reiterates this phrase once again, to the praise of God's glory. That is the purpose of it all. So as we read the headlines, hear rumors of wars, and face the challenges of each day, behind it all is God's magnificent plan being worked out, conceived before the foundation of the world. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, uniting everything in Christ. So it truly is all God, every last bit of it. And Paul sums this up so well at the end of Romans when he writes, all things are from him, through him, and to him. And we see that truth on display here in this text. From him, God is the source and the designer. Through him, God is the mechanism through which all things work. And to him, God is the purpose. It's to the praise of his glory. But of course, this does not let us off the hook because God gave us a will and we must use it to respond to this truth, both by placing our belief in him and by loving him back through our obedience to the truth of God's word. So the doctrine of election should never cause doubt about whether we are in Christ, because our response to what God, out of his love, has done for us comes down to just two things, belief and behavior. And that's why when you break down this letter to the church in Ephesus, the first three chapters are about belief, and the second three chapters are about behavior, because those are the two key things. First, belief. Have we placed our faith in Christ or not? If so, we are his adopted children, period. Why is that so important? Because when you believe in something, you are acknowledging that it is truth. God calls us to acknowledge that he is truth. If you believe it's safe to drive across the bridge, that is true, and you drive across the bridge, that affects your behavior. If you don't believe it's safe to drive across that bridge, you don't drive across it. Do you see how it shapes your behavior? And that's why the second thing, behavior, is so important. Do we love God back through our obedience to him? It's really that simple. It's our belief and our behavior. But to be very clear, so while neither our belief or our behavior, they're not what make us adopted children. The only thing that makes us adopted children is that it's from God, through God, and to God. 
But our belief and our behavior, because of God's promises, are the very basis for the evidence we have that we are in Christ. So it's so important that we leave here with that today. Now, I want to end on one very important word that we don't want to miss out on, and that's this word, hope. Paul calls out a specific object of this plan and this phrase, we who were the first to hope in Christ. The we again speaks to the saints, but specifically to the saints who were formerly Jews, part of that nation Israel. Because throughout the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people, and they eagerly awaited for this promised Messiah. So the Jews were the first to hope in a Messiah. And as God's plan has unfolded through a series of covenants and events in fulfillment of those covenants, everything has pointed to the Messiah, who to redeem God's chosen people. The Messiah was the great hope of the ages that was finally made manifest in Jesus Christ, God's Son. That is God's will, the grand cosmic plan set in place before the foundation of the world, a plan that's being carried out from God, through God, and to God, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for revealing to us the mystery of this great inheritance that we receive as Your adopted children. May the wisdom and insight that You've revealed to us through this truth shape the entirety of our lives as we take up our crosses daily to follow after You and as we live to the praise of Your glory. We thank You for Your many blessings, but especially for our identity in Your Son's mighty name. We praise You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.